turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter, the first chapter. We'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Remembering that this is not just words written down for certain people, though it is true, but it is not words written merely by man. These are words that the Lord inspired the Apostle Peter to write. And Peter wrote of what he personally knew. He saw the very glory of Christ on that Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was someone who had plenty of ups and downs as a disciple of Christ. But now he's an apostle, he's older, he's more mature, but most importantly, he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's consider that and take that into account. I'll begin at verse 1 and we'll read through verse 9. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested gen genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. We've already looked at verses 1 through 5 in the first couple of times we have begun examining what Peter has to tell us here. Just a reminder to you uh, that Peter is writing uh, to suffering Jewish Christians who had been persecuted, were being persecuted in Jerusalem and fled the city and now were scattered. That's what this word dispersion means, the scattering. They have been scattered throughout various regions of what today is modern Turkey or Asia Minor. And they are 
they, these Christians are seeking to be faithful to Jesus Christ, their Redeemer, in spite of the fact that they have been persecuted for their faith and the reality that persecutions were going to intensify as time goes on, which did happen. Peter is talking here to people in many ways like you and me. In a sense, we are exiles. Where is our real home? It's not, for me, it's not at 8258 Street North, even though I grew up in that house and now I'm spending my latter years in life there. My real home is in heaven. Your real home is in heaven. And Peter here is rejoicing over the fact that that's the case for all believers in Christ. Rejoicing with suffering going on. Keep that thought because that's what Peter is talking about, especially beginning at verse 3 and going through verse 12. And we're in the middle of considering several reasons why we can rejoice in our sufferings. Two times ago, when we looked at verses uh, 3 through 5, uh, we recognized that we can rejoice uh, when <clears throat> we have a, the security of a new life. We can praise God. He says, blessed be God, praise God, because we have a new life. We've been born again. And then the second reason why we can rejoice in our sufferings is that what we're going to talk about today, this actual suffering is used to enrich our lives. There's good to come from suffering. That's why we can rejoice. We are big picture Christians. See, we, we, we tend to get lost in the immediate, right? Our emotions get hold of us and our struggles and not just in our everyday sufferings and struggles. And then there's the, the hard, hard uh, experiences we have when people turn away from us or reject us or even seek to inflict some kind of badness on us because we are faithful to Christ. Well, I mentioned before, we, people can lose their jobs over this, and they are. If we are not politically correct, if we're not woke, and we are standing on the promises of the unchanging word of God and the gospel of Christ, we are not only going to encounter some degree of pushback or even persecution, but as I mentioned before, my, my concern is not just us, it's our children and our grandchildren because the trend is going in a way that's going to make it harder and harder to stay faithful to Christ. And so our children may encounter much more difficult challenges than we have, we who are here today. Now, grandchildren, perhaps even worse. Now, we don't ever have to be gloom and doom because Christ is Lord, right? Christ is ruling over this world. This is my Father's world. And he is not relinquishing one little bit of control over this world to the devil. The devil knows he's going to lose, but he's going to put up a good fight anyway in trying to bring us down. 
So we're looking at that today, and just so you'll know what's coming in two weeks when we come back to this, the third reason we can praise God in spite of our suffering, we can praise Him for the scriptures which teach us about this new life. You'll see that in verses 10 through 12, but that's what we'll look at uh, in two weeks. The scriptures that teach us about this new life. So let's look at the second one. Hopefully I haven't confused you. I'm just trying to give you the, the plan here. Verses 7 through 9 give us the second reason why we can rejoice in our sufferings. Because the suffering that God brings into our lives is designed to enrich our lives for the glory of God. Verses six through, excuse me, verses three through nine are actually one long sentence in the original Greek. And I point that out, not because I like to show off my Greek knowledge. I don't have much actually. I don't, I'm still not sure how I pass Greek. <clears throat> in fact, I almost didn't, but anyway. Verses three through nine is one long sentence in the original. And the, the point of that is that this is, a, this is all united. This is all, in a sense, a thought that Peter breaks down uh, for us to appreciate what God is doing when he allows sufferings into our lives. And not only allows it, he actually has appointed those sufferings for us. So look at the what and look at the why. That's what we're looking at today. The what is in verse 6. In other words, what is Peter telling me here? He's telling us when suffering, we can rejoice. When suffering, we can rejoice. Now, look, I don't mean when somebody comes up to you and says, I'm so sorry that uh, your mother-in-law has cancer. And we're going, yeah, my mother-in-law has cancer. I'm rejoicing. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about something very deep in our hearts. A knowledge and understanding that we have of how God fits into what's going on. Whatever kind of suffering is, you know, Peter here talks about various trials, all kinds of trials. So rejoicing and suffering, verse six says, Blessed be the, excuse me, I was reading the wrong verse, verse six. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In this, in what? What's he talking about? The in this refers to what he said right before that, verses three through five. When he was telling us that we can praise God because he has caused us to be born again. He's given us a new life. And that new life will never be lost. It's imperishable, it's undefiled, it's unfading. It's reserved in heaven for us. This place that God has, an inheritance that God has for us, reserved in heaven for us. And so in that, he says, amazingly, you rejoice. Even though you see, we, we don't just rejoice when everything's going our way. We don't just rejoice when we're in a good mood. We don't just rejoice when we get everything we wanted for Christmas. We rejoice even though. It's pretty important. 
or as he puts it, though now, verse 6, in this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. These trials hurt. They bring grief, varying degrees, depending on how strongly these trials and sufferings are that we're encountering. But they bring some degree of grief in our lives. Rejoicing and suffering. That seems like a stunning combination of terms. Most people would look at that and say, you can't rejoice now. Look at what you're going through. You can't. He's not saying you have to rejoice because somehow this is fun or this is what you've always wanted. No, that's obviously not the case. You're rejoicing in a sense in spite of the suffering, but you are rejoicing in it, not, uh, not because it's, there's some thrill there that's involved. You are able to have, well, it's kind of like the ocean. You can have a hurricane go whipping across an ocean and stirring up all those high seas and you know big ships even need to get out of the way for 30-foot swells and all of that. But down below, if you were down below 200, 300 feet, it'd be all calm. It'd be all calm deeper down. That's sort of the way we can be. Deep down in our heart of hearts, we can be calm. We can rejoice because God is at work and God works all things together for good, right? All things. Not just the things that we think are good. And so there's a connection there between rejoicing and trials. And that's nothing new. If you think about what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, he connects that himself. In verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. And he says why? Sufferings are part of a process in our lives. We rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. You see how one leads to another. God is working this process and he's using trials to do it because in his perfect wisdom and love, he knows that's what it's going to take to get us from where we are to where he wants us to be. James does the very same thing in James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And then he does the same thing that Paul did, essentially. Verse 3, he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So you've got three different apostles here saying the same thing. They're saying that we can be joyful in the midst of our sorrows because of the process that that involves. Now, most people will respond to suffering in a very different way, of course. Even Christian people, because they hadn't they haven't figured this out. And so they'll respond in anger. 
sometimes. Angry at whoever's caused them all this grief. Angry at God. Angry at family members taking it out on them. You always hurt the ones you love. That's what the song says. And we can also be fearful. We can be afraid because we, we are afraid that something bad is going to happen to us and we don't want that. Or even worse, maybe something bad is going to happen to one of our loved ones and we don't want it. And we can think it's all useless and complain to God about it. But you know, Christianity, this is the great thing about Christianity, one of the great things. Christianity is the only faith if you want to use the word religion, I really don't like that word, but it's the only faith that can legitimately connect suffering with rejoicing. Think about that when you are reminded of what different belief systems uh, hold to, what they, what they uh, confess their views of, of uh, God and everything it is. And you'll see that, that they don't have an answer for this. Christianity does, because Christ came to deal with that once and for all. And so he says we can rejoice in spite of our suffering. He says we suffer for a little while. Your suffering is temporary. And you may say, it doesn't seem like a little while to me. Look, an hour walking through the park is a lot different than an hour in the dentist chair, right? An hour in the dentist chair can seem like 10 hours. Feel like I've been here all day. Is he ever going to stop? Am I ever going to be able to close my mouth again? It hurts. My jaws are tensing up. <clears throat> Compared to eternity, <clears throat> whatever suffering you and I go through is temporary. It's for a little while, for a limited period of time. 2 Corinthians 4, 17, it says that very same thing. I'm not going to read it now, but, <clears throat> and he says it's necessary. Suffering is not optional. Suffering is not bad luck. Suffering has a purpose. It's necessary for your spiritual good in the long run. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Paul told Timothy. But it's grievous, as I said. Now look, Christians should not have the idea that if they're really strong in their faith, they shouldn't grieve over some very, very sorrowful thing that's happened in their lives. Christians rightly grieve too. But as Paul told the Thessalonians in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. A whole different thing, a whole different perspective. It's grief, but it's grief with a, a godly, truthful perspective that Peter is talking about here. Don't pretend that sufferings don't fill us with grief. Express your grief in whatever way is good for you. There's no one way to express it for one person, for all people, I mean. Martin Niemeller, 
trying to pronounce that the German way, but I don't think I had much success. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany during the Nazi years, and he was going to prison for his faith, just like Dietrich Bonhoeffer did. And when he preached his last sermon before he went to prison on June 27th, 1937, this is what he said. There is indeed no hope except to hold firm to the crucified one and learn to say in simple and therefore certain faith, in the bottom of my heart, thy name and cross alone shine forth at all times in all hours and therefore I can be glad. That's what Peter's talking about. And if for you who have an interest in history, Martin Niemöller actually was able to get out of prison after Germany fell, Hitler died, and the war was over. And he lived to, I believe, 1964, uh, to a, an old age, unlike Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, so the what is, when suffering we can rejoice, and then Peter explains the why. God produces good from our sufferings. God produces good from our sufferings, and this is what we see in verses 7 through 9. Sufferings develop our faith. Verse 7. Sufferings develop our faith so that, there's the idea of purpose, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uses the example of our faith being tested like gold. Gold was a precious commodity in ancient times, just like it still is today. But the purer, the more pure gold is, the more valuable it is and the longer it lasts. But notice he says it perishes too. It will perish too. So in a sense, we're like the purification of gold getting it hotter and hotter and hotter to remove the impurities in the gold so that it becomes more completely pure, closer to 100% pure. Well, God is, is testing us. He is removing the impurities in our lives as we grow in holiness, as we come to see more of where our sin is. We have sin patterns in our lives that earlier on in our Christian life, we don't even realize we're in those sin patterns. And as we grow in Christ, we become more aware of them. And then we deal with them. We, we acknowledge them to God and people where it applies to them. And we confess our sins to the Lord and he forgives us in true repentance. And we, we acknowledge we need to stop that sin pattern. We need to break it with the help of God working in us through the Holy Spirit. So, there's that purification process that's going on, tested and refined like gold. And he says it's going to bring glory to God when we do that. We are headed for glory, but we want to, we want to show forth the glory of God now. 
And we do that when we become more like Christ. You know, Job experienced this himself, and he said words that were very similar to what Peter is saying here. <clears throat> Job said in chapter 23, verse 10, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, that means tested me, I shall come out as gold. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. He knows. Job says, God knows. He knows what he's doing. He knows what's going on here. He's not surprised. Sufferings also depend on faith. Verse 8. Depends on faith. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's what faith is. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We are trusting in not just something, we're trusting in someone that we've never seen before. And when you stop and think about it, you put your trust in a whole lot of people you've never seen before. Every time you eat something that you bought in the grocery store, you're trusting that whoever put that together did it right. I'm not trying to scare you now. You don't go to the grocery store and go, oh, I don't know if I can buy this or not. Don't, don't go there too much. But it's true that we've always depended on the, the inspection process of products that come to us that we consume, that that process has taken place and when it Something goes wrong, notices go out everywhere, you know, don't buy uh, this macaroni because it was got some kind of contagious element to it. Uh, pulling those off the shelves, and hopefully that's going to be, continue to be a re relatively accurate thing for our sakes. <clears throat> so we have to trust the Lord that we've never seen. Now Peter's saying this, and he's seen Jesus. He's seen Jesus. So he's not saying, look, I'm sorry, but you didn't have my experience, so you really can't trust him like I can. No. Remember what, what Peter was standing there when, when John the Apostle, John the Apostle writes to us in John chapter 20, verse 29, after Thomas saw Jesus and bowed down in front of him, my Lord and my God. And John, Jesus said, do you believe now that you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and believe. You don't have to literally see Jesus. You haven't been shortchanged because Jesus is in heaven. He's in heaven working in your life now through the Holy Spirit. And you will see him again one day. Not again, but you will see him one day, literally. As somebody put it, I think this was very helpful because he says here when you don't you don't see him now but he says you're going to he says that <clears throat> you love him you've not seen him but you love him 
Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And that's going to lead, of course, to our being in glory one day. The point is, as someone once said, what you see isn't what you get. We all use that phrase, what you see is what you get. Well, in this case, what you see now in your life, you're not seeing God, literally. You're not seeing much glory. You're seeing a degree of it. But what you see right now isn't what you're going to get in heaven. So sufferings deepen our joy. He goes on to say there, <clears throat> you rejoice, at the end of verse 8, you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Inexpressible. You ever, we all have this times when we say, when we're trying to describe something and we say, I just can't put it into words. Sometimes uh, somebody who's madly in love with someone will say, I, I just can't put into words how much I love you. It, it's so profound and it, it's, it, it's requiring words from me and putting words together that, that I've never had to do before. It's, it's, it's just so great. And the joy that we have in Christ, it's hard to convince someone else sometimes, especially if they're not believers, that the joy we have is the real deal. It's something that nothing else can produce. The joy of knowing that it is well with our souls, that we know Christ, we love Christ, we don't have to see him, and he loves us. What a blessing. Inexpressible. Even though Christians right now are those whose lives may have been hit hard by trials and by people who oppose the cross of Christ, we can have that joy. Inexpressible joy. Most people think differently, of course. They think that the happiest people, the most joyful people, are the ones who have the most money, uh, the greatest uh, wonderful looks, wonderful health, power, influence. Those are the things that make you happy. Well, they may ha make you happy on a more superficial level. But they can't, they can't do what Jesus can do. They can't give you that kind of joy. And I, I think the greatest thing about that, though, is that sufferings prepare us for glory. In verse 9... He says, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All this is leading up to glorification. The outcome of your faith is going to be that you will have the salvation of your souls in glory. Again, as we said before, this doesn't mean you weren't saved before that. No, it's just the culmination of the process. You have been saved. Right now you are being saved if you're a Christian, growing in grace, holiness, sanctification. And you will be saved when you're with the Lord in heaven because that will be the climax of all of your experience with the Lord and you will be that way forever. At the end of verse 7, he also mentioned that. Just note that. Fire might be tried by fire might be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means at the coming of Christ. J.I. Packer said, 
One time, I want my pie in the sky. People like to make fun of Christianity, you know. Oh, you believe in pie in the sky by and by when you die. Packer said, hey, I want my pie in the sky. You know, there's blessings here now, yes, but the best is yet to come. And that's what Peter's talking about here. One writer summarizes verses 7 through 9 very simply. He says, be glad when you are sad. Be glad when you are sad. All sufferings are trials of faith. But it is especially the sufferings we encounter because of our demonstrated conviction that Jesus Christ is both the Savior and Lord of the world. He's the Savior of sinners and the Lord of all in this world. And because of that, our sufferings can be among the most meaningful and fruitful experiences for our lives because we can show the power of Christ, the living Christ who suffered and died and rose again from the dead for us that we could have this new life that Peter's talking about. God's enemies are our enemies and we must accept that reality standing firmly on the sure and certain foundation of Christ and his word. Are you prepared to stand firm, whatever the cost. Will you stand firm, whatever the cost? If you're thinking, I hope so, but I, I, I just don't know if I'm strong enough. You can be strong enough in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Rely on Christ Loving him, trusting him supremely, and trusting in his word completely. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you give us a perspective, a truthful perspective, on going through the difficulties that we encounter in life. They're not mere inconveniences. They're not accidents. It's not bad luck. It's your sovereign will to use these difficulties, especially being mistreated because of our faith. You use those to grow our faith and to help us be better witnesses to those very ones. And so we pray for the grace, the strength and the power that we need, filling us with your spirit, enabling us to stand firm upon the foundation of your word, of the gospel of Christ. And Lord, help us to influence the next generations to do the same. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.